0: I've gotten to see a lot of things over the course of my life i've seen the grand canyon and i've seen both oceans on the coast of our great nation i've seen tornadoes and i've driven through the tail end of a hurricane i have seen of course uh, with glass between us the world's most venomous snake and uh, right out of high school i had an opportunity to go to san diego and there at the san diego zoo was a panda that had been born only weeks earlier I've been to several countries, three to be in fact. In one of those countries, I was walking down the road, and a man was there who had taken his horse and painted it to look like a zebra and charging you to take pictures with it. I've seen Mars through a telescope. I've seen more than one eclipse. I've been on, the, I've been on a military training base and watched men uh, march in formation. I've been to a motocross rally and seen stunts done on dirt bikes. Believe it or not, I lived here for six years before I saw my first sand crane. And the weirdest part about it is, I did not see my first sand crane until I was in Florida. Got out of the car. We were at my wife's grandparents. I was either getting children out of the car or just getting something out of the car, and turned around, and there it was, no more than three feet from me, staring at me. And I stared right back. It was a beautiful bird. But I began to notice as I stood there longer and it stood there longer that it was not startled at all by my presence. And I wondered if I drove all the way to Florida to find the first rabid sand crane. (laughs) And now I was really watching the bird. And I bet if we sat here and we shared all the experiences that we have had and things that we have been able to see, we would compile a very long list. Now, John opens his witness, his gospel about Jesus by focusing on what he saw. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says to us, The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you go a little bit further, in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, When we saw him, we saw glory, and then he says, We received grace upon grace we saw him john means that literally with his eyes and when he saw what jesus did he saw glory and when he saw glory he was recipient he was the recipient of grace now all the way in john 20 john tells us that he wrote everything down all these accounts so that you and i could see jesus so that you and i could have the opportunity to see him. And when seeing him, see his glory. And with seeing his glory, be the recipients of grace. And if you noticed in our reading, or a little bit earlier, verse 11, the story we're going to talk about ends by telling us that it was the opportunity for Jesus to reveal himself, reveal his glory, and in response, his disciples believed. And that's the task for us this morning, is to see this story, and to see Jesus in the story, to see the glory in it, and then to respond by believing. And so I'm going to help you with that this morning, or Lord willing, I'm going to help you with that. I want you together, or us together, we are going to together see Jesus in this story. And I think we can see him particularly three ways. Number one, we see Jesus bound to the will of the Father. We see Jesus, who is bound to the will of the Father. This is one of those texts where we get a very puzzling moment. Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are all invited to a wedding. Now, it would be helpful, perhaps, to understand that in that time, weddings, or the Feast of Weddings, the reception, would happen over the course of several days. So those of you who have paid for a wedding and had to pay for one day, imagine what it would take to pay for several days. These things were not done the way we do them. It was not that you would have the wedding at 1, pictures at 2, dinner at 4, and the last dance at 11. It would go ahead and go further and often many times lasting up to a whole week. And so in the story, we come to a problem. People want wine. And they've run out. Now, the puzzling moment here, though, is that Jesus' mother apparently finds this out first. And goes to him and says... We have a problem, or there's a problem at this wedding, and I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us what her investment is. We don't know if there's, this is her second cousin twice removed, and she doesn't want to be embarrassed. We don't know really why she's invested in the problem of running out of wine. What we do know here in the story is that she goes to Jesus, and he responds, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, I want, to, I want you to understand here, there's no textual issue here. There's no translation problem. The, 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 the emotion you get in from the text is real. Jesus is rebuking his mother for trying to get him involved. Now his response, he tells us why. He says, my hour is not yet come, and we'll come back to that. But the idea, of course, is he's saying to her, you don't decide then we see in verse 5 really the confirmation that she understood it this way because instead of bringing the problem to Jesus, she goes to the servants and says, do whatever he says. The idea here that you and I, the reader, are supposed to understand is to ask the question, what motivates Jesus? Why does he act when he does? Why does he not do what he does? What, what are the things that are binding him to actions? Is it his parents? Of course, here we see the answer is no. Is it circumstances? Is he bound because of his own wants and needs? Is he bound to our needs? And as we go through the book of John, we actually get the answer. He tells the disciples several times, he says, I I do this because I want to fulfill what the Father has written. Or he says, I do this because it is the will of the Father. If we go to Philippians 2, we're told outright, all of the obedience, everything that Jesus did was in perfect obedience to the Father. He was bound to the will of the Father. And so when Jesus, think about it this way, when Jesus looked upon people with compassion, when the Bible tells us that he does that, it's not just compassion that causes him to move and to act. He is primarily one who acts as one who wants to be in perfect obedience to the Father. And so one of the things that John wants us to see is we want to see a life, Jesus, who lived in perfect harmony and perfect obedience to his Father. And he wants us to see the glory of that. Now, i want to ask you to do me a favor this morning. Think of all the Sunday school training you've had. And start with Moses, the stories you've heard about Moses. And remember that all the people he led out of Egypt, they ended up dying in the wilderness. But don't forget, Moses also died in the wilderness because of his rebellion. Or we go to Job, who the Bible goes to great length to remind us was righteous in all of his life, but God rebukes him for trying to call him into account. Or we, we can even go right past the book of Judges and we can see people like Samson. The men and women through scripture, not perfectly obedient. Maybe I could say it this way. Jesus is not like you and me. Never do we read in the gospels of Jesus becoming irritated with a little child who is being whiny. Never do we find ourselves with him or read about him being angry over trivial matters like somebody not putting the car seat back if they had cars. He's never angry because somebody left a wrapper on the floor. He's not angry because somebody forgot to rinse out the dishes. Never once does he act in greed. Never once does he act in lust. Never once does he act in pride. He never gossips. He never destroys anybody's reputation in a dark corner. He never shoots his mouth. You and I have never been close to perfect obedience to the Father. And that itself is an understatement. Or maybe take a moment and think of somebody you look up to in your spiritual life, a spiritual hero. Maybe it's somebody from a long time ago, a missionary. Maybe it's a a pastor you've read about or an athlete who loved Jesus. They never got close to the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make something clear, though. The Bible speaks directly and openly about the fact that Jesus had every ounce of humanity. Jesus was not perfectly obedient because he was detached and uncaring. We read about him loving, crying, getting tired. People left him, people disappointed him, people accused him of things he never did or said. We read about him getting angry, we read about him being moved with compassion. So let's not just come to the conclusion, you know what, the reason Jesus was so obedient is because he was detached from the other people around him. Or perhaps he was not affected by those things. And the Bible makes it very clear he was. But he was bound to the Father, perfectly in sync with the Father. Only the Father's will would cause him to act this way or that way. And so what John wants you to see is to see a Jesus. And see the glory of perfect obedience to the Heavenly Father and believe. The second thing we see. Number two, we can see Jesus imitate the Father. We see Jesus imitate the Father. Because this is a story that we're very familiar with, we can zip right through it. I want you to notice once again, Jesus is reasoning to his mother as to why she should not have asked him is he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, if you go through the book of John, in fact, if you go through all of the Gospels, there is only a handful of times he uses that phrase, and they're all in the same context. Every time the phrase, my hour has not yet come, it is always about his death. He's saying to his mother, what does this have to do with me? It is not time for me to die. That's an odd thing to say. But if we go through the Bible, we see Jesus, he moves away from hostile crowds, and the Bible says he did this because his time had not yet come. We see in the Bible, he finds himself cornered, but he escapes, and the Bible says he was able to escape because his time had not yet come. There were those who were actively trying to kill him, and the Bible says they were not able to because his time had not yet come. So I want you to keep in mind, everything that's going on here, or the the context then given to us, is this has something to do with his death. Now John tells us there were purification jars. There at the wedding feast, let's remind ourselves that this is an issue that Jesus has to confront more than once. Jesus talks about the purification tradition. One of the things this tradition was is that you... You became unclean if you went and ate your food without washing first. I've actually seen this. I was in a Jewish deli in New York City. There were the two men and women's Ross rooms. In between them was a water fountain, and next to the water fountain were hand-washing stations. And I actually watched as I ate my sandwich as several Jews went over there and did the ritual of washing their hands. But Jesus says this ritual of washing hands was really just to cover up that they were unclean on the inside. So Jesus takes these specific jars. He tells them to put water in them. And the Bible says, I want you to point out here, the Bible says they raised him all the way to the brim. There was nothing in those jars. That's the point of telling us. It all the way to the brim. And so they take it to the master of the feast. And it's the best wine he's ever tasted. Now, I want you to think back to the garden. The Bible records for us that that God creates the world. Then the Bible records for us that God, in creating the world, creates a garden specifically for us, where we can enjoy fellowship with him. We watch Jesus turn water into wine, which is also an act of creation. We see it somehow relates to his death. It has something to do with being made pure, what we see is Jesus planting the garden, creating the space. He's starting to open up an opportunity for people to bring, come back into fellowship with God. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus will lift up a cup of wine when he sits with his disciples and he will say, This cup is my blood, which is the new covenant so we can establish a new relationship with God. His death is all over this miracle. Let me try to explain it this way. Until a certain age, children are completely dependent upon their, chil- their parents. When people get to a certain age, they become completely dependent upon their children. Let's just make it a point to say, neither side likes this arrangement. Children do not like to be told what they can and cannot eat, but they have no ability to get food for themselves. They have no idea what is and is not nutritious. Or you go to an older adult, and after a lifetime of living independently and making decisions and caring for others, often they feel embarrassed or even ashamed that people have to take care of them. Some of you would saw off your left foot before you let somebody take care of you. But the reality is, we get to stages in our life and situations in our life where there is no choice but to have somebody from outside of ourselves care for us. And one of the things we see in this miracle is the beginning of care for us that came from outside of ourselves. When it comes to our eternal salvation, when it comes to being innocent on the day of judgment, I cannot emphasize this enough. We cannot deal with it. The answer has to come from outside of ourselves. And it's Jesus and his shed blood that is foretold in this miracle that does it. And so God, he creates the world and he makes a garden for us to live in. And here we see Jesus beginning to create a garden that will be finished when he dies on the cross and rises again. A garden that will be seen in Revelation, the garden city of God. And so what we see is an imitation. The Father cares for us in the beginning. The Son cares for us in the end. He is perfectly obedient to his Father, and it leads right to the cross. And he shows divine care for us like the Father did on day one. In fact, Jesus will say, I and my Father are one. He will tell the disciples, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So we believe, not just in a Jesus Christ who who is glorified because of his perfect obedience. But we see a Jesus who imitates perfectly his Father and the glory that comes with that. And we are called to believe. Then number three. Number three, we can see Jesus, the groom, given to us by the Father. We can see Jesus, the groom, given to us by the Father. At the close of the account, we see the master of the feast, the wedding planner, if you will, give praise to the groom. And we get a small insight on some culture here. It was the groom's responsibility to provide the wine. Now, if you had a wedding, and you knew there were going to be people there, and in fact, the wedding might take the course of several days, you're going to do something to try and save money. And apparently, one of the things that you would do to save money was to do what? To take the wine and water it down so there'd be more of it and that's what the wedding the 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 wedding planner is saying here most people they put out the nice full proof wine and little by little they begin to chart to bring out the the worst wine but you've you've saved the best for last he's surprised he's praising the groom you have saved the best wine for the last day is the idea there's no, if you want to think of it this way, the, the, the wedding planner, the, the master of the feast is saying to the groom, there has never been someone so generous. Now the idea of Jesus as a groom is a common idea in the Gospels. Just a chapter over from here, John the Baptizer will use the same image. When he says that I must decrease and he must increase, he describes him as the bride and groom. He's saying, look, if we're at a wedding... All the attention is supposed to be where? On the couple. So when the bride and groom enter, it's appropriate for all the attention to be headed their direction. That's what John's saying when he says, I must decrease and he must increase. And if this imagery continues to go up all through our Bibles and the Gospels, Jesus will use it in the imagery of going away and coming back. He uses it as the imagery as the groom who goes and prepares a place for his bride. He will come back and get her so they can be married. We go all the way through our New Testament. The church is the bride and Jesus is the groom. We go to the end of our Bibles and at the conclusion of history, we have the same imagery. Jesus comes for his bride. There is going to be a reception, a marriage supper, a wedding feast, and we will be with him for eternity. Now, when two people get married, And I don't want to pick on the newest married people here to my left. Even when it's the best situation, and you have two wonderful people, there are always nerves. Maybe not between the two of them, but the people around them. Because the people around them who have been married for some time understand how hard marriage can get. There's no comparison to the kind of hurt and pain a spouse can cause. You become entirely exposed. A spouse is going to get to know you more than anybody else knows you. And so when a young man and a young woman come together, no matter how wonderful they are, there are going to be people who are going to be nervous for them. Or I can tell you another thing. When I sit down with two people who are getting ready to get married for premarital counseling... One of the things I prepare myself for is the fact that they're not going to listen. Now, I don't mean because they're stubborn. That does happen. I do sometimes run into stubborn couples. What's really normal is that I get two people who sit across from me who tell me I'm crazy when I tell them there's going to be temptation and issues that are going to come that you never expected. You're going to have arguments over things and actions within the bathroom. No, no, never, not us. And they'll deny and deny and deny and say, oh, no, 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 we'll never do that. Any parent who's married off off a child, who's tried to sit down with them and say, look, this is going to happen. I know the struggle of trying to get them to understand, but the reality is the reason they don't understand, the reason it's so hard to believe is because they don't have any context in which to think about it. My point here is that if the, in the imagery of marriage, sometimes we don't see it as is intended because of our own struggles. If you're under 18 this morning, it's hard to understand the imagery. You have no context to understand it. And if you are married, because there have been problems, because everybody has problems and issues and difficulties and seasons in their marriage, it's hard to see the purity of the image. Because Jesus Christ is the absolute perfect spouse. Jesus is the groom who comes with the food and the wine for the greatest feast. Jesus is the groom who comes fully prepared, fully having completed everything he needed to do to bring his bride home. Jesus, when he says his grooms, or as a groom, who, when he says his vows, says them with perfect sincerity and total devotion. As a husband, he's willing to do anything for his bride. He's, he's willing to do the things that draw blood. We watch him as he dies for his bride and lives for his bride. He will welcome his bride into heaven. He will give his bride the world, literally. He is the perfect groom, the perfect spouse given to us by the Heavenly Father. And he comes and he willingly takes his prize by the hand. This is the glory we are to see. Believe in a Christ who is perfectly obedient. See the glory of that perfect obedience. Believe in a Christ who perfectly imitates the Father and see the glory in it. And see the Jesus who has gone to prepare a place for us and will take us as his own and see the glory in it. But above all things, see Jesus, see the glory, and believe. This is a very simple account. Probably one you've heard many times. John, the author of this account, wants us to see. He says that at the beginning, he says that at the end, I want you to see Jesus, I want you to see the glory, I want you to believe. This is the first sign the first miracle, the first moment, and Jesus did it in Canaan of Galilee at a wedding. And the Bible says there he manifested his glory and his disciples believed. Let's pray. Father, I pray with this, this very simple, often Sunday school type story, perhaps one we haven't even looked at since we were small children and watching Flannel Graph. Lord, We thank you for this simple story so that we can see Jesus, we can see glory, and we can believe. And I pray, Father, that would be true here, Father, you would give eyes for everyone who is sitting here this morning. You would give them the eyes to see Jesus, give them the eyes to see glory, and give them the grace to believe. This is our prayer and our hope, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.